the Fail On Podcast, episode 001. If I could boil down my success over the last 13 years is I've always surrounded myself with people who are one or two steps ahead of me. And what that does on a on an unconscious level, I mean, we, we all have a deep desire to belong to a peer group. And when you surround yourself with people who are ahead of you, unconsciously it pushes you to get to their level as quickly yeah. as possible so you can feel like you belong. Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hello and welcome to the podcast that believes if you desire to create the life of your dreams, then embracing failure by taking urgent and bold action is the only way. Today, you and I get to learn from none other than Jason Gaynard, a super connector, the creator of Mastermind Talks, and the author of Mastermind Dinners. I'll be talking to Jason about elevating your network along with the best and worst ways to find mentorship buying an $84,000 book bundle from Tim Ferriss while being absolutely broke, and how embracing failure, taking risks, and getting out of his comfort zone completely transformed his life, and much, much more. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all Fail On podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com, F-A-I-L-O-N.com, failon.com. Now, without further ado, Mr. Jason Gaynard. Hey there, and welcome to the Fail On Podcast. I'm so excited for today's show for two reasons. One, we've got Jason Gaynard in the house, the founder and head talent scout of Mastermind Talks, an annual invite-only event designed for elite entrepreneurs with an acceptance rate lower than Harvard. And reason number two that I'm so pumped is that we're sitting here together in beautiful Eleuthera, an island in the Bahamas, thanks to Jason and Candice, his wife, for organizing the trip for a small group of Mastermind Talks members. Jason, welcome to the show, my man. Excited to be here, dude. This is by far the earliest interview I've ever done, <laughs> especially for somebody like you, because we're, we're Eastern time and it's 6 a.m. Eastern time. So for you, it's like 3 a.m. So thank you for having me on. Whatever it takes to get you on the line, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm freshest in the morning. I'm excited. So this no, is I am too. Not usually at 3 a.m., but usually at 5 a.m. But we'll go into Mastermind Talks and your current products in a bit. But I really want you to take us back to the first time that you provided a service or product in exchange for money. When was that and how did it come about? That's a great question. I guess two incidences come to mind. First was, oh, I guess one on some level, I guess I'm used as a contractor. I had a newspaper route where I had to collect money and I got a portion of that. That was one thing. I don't know how old I was then. But then I had a snow shoveling business mm. in Canada and a lawn mowing business. And the funny thing is I, I remember making flyers. My mom still has thousands of these bloody flyers <laughs> I made for some reason. And I made it with like clip art on the front. And then you opened it and it had this like, I don't know, this like text or copy that was full of spelling errors and that kind of stuff. And I handed out like probably like 900 of these things, didn't get a single call. And then on the last like 50, I ended up writing a handwritten note at the bottom saying, you know, I'm a 13 year old guy, blah, blah, blah. Just like this kind of, there was all this like 
crappy copy that was full <laughs> sure. of spelling mistakes. And then I gave like just this vulnerable, transparent copy of like really like who I was and that kind of stuff. Because I was trying to be this big business. Yeah, I was yeah. trying to for <laughs> getting long cutting clients. How old were uh, you? Here? Is- I would would have been probably about thirteen. Okay, and ended up getting out of the fifty I sent out, I ended up getting a response of like eight or something like that. So my conversion rate went That's through the roof, unreal, roof yeah. by being vulnerable in that copy. So that would be the first time I kind of, yeah, had some kind of product or service to offer in exchange for money. That's cool. You're being transparent and authentic before it was cool. <laughs> Dude, before it was hip. No, that's awesome. So let's go, let's go to what you would consider your very first failure in the world of entrepreneurship, whether it's a macro, large-scale failure or a micro failure that you ran into just getting started. What was it and how did it come about? Well, that was kind of a failure, like right out of the gate. I mean, as far as like hand-delivering 900 or 950 of these Were things. Were you going door-to-door? Yeah, locally in my neighborhood. And it wasn't the first time my direct mail efforts failed miserably. But that was like a micro failure. And just thankfully, for some reason, I felt like writing a little note as far as I didn't realize it had spelling mistakes till last year. (laughs) So like I I originally thought like, oh, this is actually some really good, really good marketing. So that would be like my first, my first thing. And then my first official business, I did a similar mistake with direct mail, which I got zero response rate, period, which was I was, I launched a concierge firm, which we'd run errands for people. So what happened was I was, I dropped out of high school, became an automotive performance mechanic, did that for about a year and a half and then realized I was not going to change the world being mechanic and there's no shot uh, shots of mechanics but yeah. i was i was clearing like 500 dollars every two weeks when it came to my sure. paycheck so I'm like there's not really the path to freedom and wealth <laughs> that i was looking for and then i quit on like a thursday after like a year and then i got a job in car sales on a saturday and ended up one day i did it for a month and did exceptionally well in that month like i, I think it was like second in sales and then i had somebody come in to buy a car and knew he knew the year make and model and color and everything but he took three days off of work to to do it. And I'm like, well, it's a poor use of your time to take all this time off of work away from making money to save a couple hundred bucks. Like the opportunity cost is, is huge. So I'm like, well, I'm going to start a business geared towards car shopping for people on their behalf and ended up starting a concierge firm instead, which was really, we'd do anything as long as it was illegal and moral and would save people time. So sure. people were willing to pay $50 an hour and most likely do it. So I broke up with like people's girlfriends. I did all this. <laughs> so I walked their dogs. I would drive them around. What was the, what was the one thing that kind of got really close to that line in the sand where you'd say, I can't do that? The breaking up with somebody's girlfriend was tough because I didn't even break up with my girlfriends. I was terrible <laughs> at it. But it was easier for me to break up <laughs> with somebody else's girlfriend yeah. on their behalf. So that was what? probably one of the more interesting ones. What an epic way to break up with somebody, right? Oh, yeah. Haunty, well, and I was, it was also even more dickish by the fact that I was, I wear a tux. <laughs> so oh, I showed up to this lady's house with like a box. <laughs> and I remember exactly like where she lives and all that kind of stuff. And I showed up to her house with a box and I'm like, are you so-and-so? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, unfortunately, you know, Joe doesn't want to be with you anymore. And I handed her the box. <laughs> the only thing that could make that better was if it was like in song yeah. and you're singing it. Oh, no, no, it would not make it better. It would make the situation way worse. What did, long-winded way to answer your question. When I started that business, I had this genius direct market. I didn't know about like online marketing or that it was even a thing. So I had this genius direct mail marketing idea, which was I had these boxes made. Again, a thousand. I do everything in large quantities for some, and I still have a bunch of these boxes and a bunch of these fortune cookies. But I have these these boxes, and then you opened up the box, and there was like a little flyer about the business, and then there was a fortune cookie in it. And in the fortune cookie, there was a message about the business, like oh, let us save you time over this holiday season or something like that. And I delivered, hand delivered. 
a thousand of these in my local area or in the areas that I thought like it was rich people. Zero response rate. And it was I did it in dead of winter. And I had these boxes, so I could only deliver like 200 at a time because it would fill up my car with all right. these bloody boxes. Yeah. So that was another failure for sure. But I've been very lucky along the way to have a few little lucky breaks. And one thing about me that I've, I've come to realize after being an entrepreneur for 13 years is that I think we all tend to have lucky breaks in business, but I've been smart enough to be or present enough to be able to identify those lucky yeah. breaks and then really leverage them and double down on them in yeah. essence. Yeah, I've had to take us back to that first lucky break where, think, where things started actually, you know, whether it be the concierge service or whether it be a business after that, yeah. where something finally clicked and you're like, wow, I'm actually... I think is- two, two lucky breaks when it comes to my first business. The first was my accountant was like the first person I, I had contact with business-wise because mm-hmm. he had to like set up my business and I had no clue even to where to go when it came to accounting. He became my first client and my biggest client for the first year. So if it wasn't for him becoming my first client, I would have had no business for the most part of, the, of year sure. one and I may have given up. Very yeah. good chance I would have given up. So if it wasn't for him and that just struck of, of luck, that wouldn't happen. And I went, I look back at like all I've, I've done and accomplished in the last 13 years and I'm like something so small as far as like... Like that first client, I may not be here. Could change uh, the whole course, right? Oh, if, most definitely. Yeah. And then the second thing was my first mentor. And how that happened was he was featured in this magazine called Profit Magazine in Canada, which is similar to like an ink. They did a, a like a half page spread on him and his business. And what he did was back then was he helped companies get government grant money. And at the time I was 18. So I'm like, there has to be some grant money for me. Like I hear all these people get all this money from the government. Yeah. I haven't got anything. So, and I don't even know where to look. So I reached out to him and he's like, he specialized in like shred and like tech, getting money from the government on the tech side of things. I ended up reaching out and he's like, you know, I can't help you. Like pretty much just short and sweet. And then the following month, I was featured in the same magazine mm. and they had a three page spread on me. And when he saw that, he ended up reaching out. And he's like, okay, let's just, let's do dinner. So we did dinner and he was my first mentor. And definitely again, without him, I mean, he, if I could boil down my success over the last 13 years is I've always surrounded myself with people who are one or two steps ahead of me. And what that does on a on an unconscious level, I mean, we, we all have a deep desire to belong to a peer group. And when you surround yourself with people who are ahead of you, unconsciously it pushes you to get to their level as quickly yeah. as possible so you can feel like you belong. And with him, <laughs> so we got to give context for this episode. So we have Ben Greenfield, who is making some kind of concoction over there, who's also part of this trip, which was, yeah, was doing a little dance for us. And then we also have personal chefs who are behind us <laughs> cooking us breakfast. So we got to set the tone for the yeah. environment. There's a little chaos going on. But yeah, so I had got him as a mentor and I was incredibly impactful. Mentors have been huge for me. But one of the biggest things that he did, as I remember looking back, I was doing maybe like $5,000 a month in sales at the time, like super small. And he's like, imagine a time where you, when you're doing like $80,000 a month. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. Like I see it. I, you know, blah, blah, blah. And like intellectually I got it, but emotionally I'm like, there's no way I'll ever do $80,000 a month. However, and he helped me kind of reposition the business a little bit because I was going in a service based direction and he's he really kind of pushed me to go in a product based direction and shout out if he listens to us his name's james Perley. yeah and then after probably two and a half years later i remember we did our first like nine hundred thousand dollar month and i was like and at that point it hit me i'm like oh my god like two and a half years ago i couldn't imagine making eighty thousand dollars a month yeah now we're doing like almost a million and it just goes to show like the power of like big thinking and how mm. the people you surround yourself with can have a huge impact on that so that was definitely a lucky break and and since then i've, I've noticed the importance of surrounding yourself with people that's why mm. i surround myself with ben greenfield he's so in shape um <laughs> every time i'm around him i feel like a I feel like a slob so <laughs> i always feel like doing laps and push-ups so yeah that was a definitely lucky break that i've leveraged ever since cool i think that's an interesting topic is 
people that are just starting out that want to find mentors, right? And it seems like in your case, you weren't just reaching out having zero experience. You were actually doing something and the mentor saw that at that time, right? So what would you say to somebody that hasn't done really anything in business yet, but still want that mentor? Maybe they're looking for a shortcut. They don't realize they have to go to tough work at first Mm -hmm. before they can get somebody to recognize them and be like, okay, this person's serious, Mm -hmm. right? Because they see a lot of tire kickers and people that want help, but don't necessarily want to do the work and go through it themselves first. Yeah. So here's five easy steps. No, I'm just, uh, <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of factors. Like, I'm blessed to be on the other side of things now where people come to me for mentorship. Mm. I mean, the biggest thing I, I'm being on this side of things now is like time is scarce, obviously, right? And and people make this, this misconception that A, they put like this, if you talk to them conversation, like young entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, they put mentors on a pedestal now that like, they get a mentor it's going to like solve everything Mm. and everything's going to change for them which is far from the truth and then what happens is they also reach out to somebody and like when i get them these emails all the time and ryan holiday has made some great blog posts about it where people just email them out of the blue and they're like hey can i be your mentor i'm sorry can you be my mentor and i think it was tim ferris who said like that sounds like a an unpaid basically like an unpaid job (laughs) for me right it's a big word and so like most of the mentors i've had in my life we'd never use the word mentorship Mm. right it just happened organically like that and it took that role but we never said like i'm gonna check in with you every month and we're gonna do a three-hour meeting and some people have something set up like that but you're much more likely gonna get a no if you come out of the gate and say like, hey, I would like to take three hours out of your month every, or right. three hours of your time every month to like sit down and talk about my problems and yeah. those kind of things. So a lot of my mentorship stuff has happened organically. And I think what has been the key to it is being very vulnerable and, and transparent with this individual as far as kind of where I am, where I want to go, and very clear on how they can help me. And then also being very open to feedback because nothing is more detrimental than like you want feedback, but that you can't take it. Being unteachable. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. You got to be that absolutely. And then you also have to take action. So I think that's out of respect as well is that even if you agree or don't agree with what's being said, at least show that you considered it and, and give clear reasons as to why you took action on it and the results you achieved or why you didn't take action on it. I think that's one of the biggest things because, I yeah. mean, you don't have to be like super successful or anything like that, but you do have to show that you're, you're, you're worth investing in on some level. Yeah. Obviously, mentors help shorten the learning curve a little bit, but sure. there's obviously still a ton of lows and highs on the entrepreneurship roller coaster. So sure, sure. with that said, what's kind of the most painful part of being an entrepreneur to you, even though you have a successful business and it makes money and starting out, it's, you've come a long way, but it's still painful, I'm sure, because I know for everybody I talk to, it's painful. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of factors. I mean, there's, there's this fallacy that if you're an entrepreneur, you have all this like freedom and mm. all this kind of stuff, which is simply not true. And actually, as time goes on, it, it looks more appealing to be in a corporate business or like in a, in a cool tech company. I have a friend yeah. of mine who sold his business for like, I don't know, five, six million or something like that, and then went to go work for Facebook. Mm. And he's like, I enjoy it way more working at Facebook than I did as an entrepreneur. And he's been an entrepreneur all his life. But he's like, I got a steady paycheck. Mm. I have unlimited resources at my disposal to do whatever I want with my team Mm. within Facebook. And it's just like there's no pressure whatsoever on that front. He's in a position where he can be 100% creative all the time. The biggest struggle for me with entrepreneurship, I mean, it changes daily. But I think the biggest one, and this is coming from somebody who now is in a good financial position. Mm. 
add on top of that, you know, the years of struggle that we all face when it comes to the financial component of it, it's it, it's it's even more hard. But at this point, it's really I still think like just the debilitating pressure of entrepreneurship every once in a while that I'm I'm feeling again right now. I've been again an entrepreneur for 13 years yeah. in this specific business since 20. 2012, 2013, officially 2013, and it's some of the pressures are still as debilitating as they were. Is it, are they self-imposed? Like, yeah, that's a good point. Because some people don't like. I go through the pressures. I go through are the pressures of like wanting to deliver and over-deliver, mm. and that's because I care. Right. And there's some people that go through. They sell widgets on Amazon and. They right. could care less, and it's just a numbers game thing. Yeah. So I guess that is something not totally unique to me, but it's sure. not something seen across the board. But it, when you serve a group of people that you you care about, and you care about the you know the product that you put out there, and your your fulfillment that you get in the work, and the almost legacy piece of like if yeah. I die today, what will people remember me by? Right. There's just a tremendous amount of pressure from that, and again, it is self inflicted. But mm-hmm. that's the life I chose on some level. So just to get a little bit more context for the for the audience. So what is Mastermind Talk? How did it start? Where's it going? Yeah, so Mastermind Talk's invite-only event for entrepreneurs. To date, we've had, since our inception in 2013, we've had just shy of 16,000 entrepreneurs apply for the event, which is capped at 150 people annually, which on paper gives it a harder acceptance rate than Harvard. And yeah, it's just really an annual gathering of fascinating entrepreneurs from various different industries, from traditional brick-and-mortar businesses all the way to wearable technology and kind of mm. everything in between, and business sizes from just shy of a million to 300 million. And getting back to what I made mention before, what makes this this type of business difficult when you serve people you care about is we have 150 people at a Mastermind Talks. I'd easily have 125 of those people at my wedding. I mean, this is an example where we are right now. We're in the Bahamas, which in theory, all of you are clients, but we're on vacation with all of our families. There's like a dozen, was like 30 of us total, right? So yeah, and then as far as where we're going, usually when you have success in this industry, the common strategy to scale is more events or bigger events, Mm. and neither of those things I want to do. Instead of scaling in size every year, we've scaled it by raising the cost of investment specifically for new people come in also the caliber of people in attendance that's been our, our scaling strategy and that's our strategy in the future but it's very project-based in the sense that i don't have a 2018 plan and that's to our detriment on some level because it's yeah i mean when somebody's like oh i can't come to mastermind talks this year but i'll come next year i'm like there may not be a next year sure. and i i say that only because of my last business i was stuck on this hamster wheel where i built a business i hated to enable me to buy things i didn't need to impress people i didn't like yeah. and i just felt like i couldn't get off right. and mastermind talks is, is beautiful because it's very project-based. It's five months of super hard, all-consuming work. And then once it's done, it, you can kind of, you have space to like reconsider, do we want to do this again? Do we feel like we can raise the bar again? Those kind of things. So Mastermind Talks Carmel is taking place in 69 days. That's 100% of my focus. And then after that, I have like really nothing in my schedule. I have a trip to like Italy with my wife and my daughter, but that's that's pretty much it. So with, with that said, outside of Mastermind Talks, is there anything else you're working on business-wise that fills up your time once the event's done? You know, it's funny because I've I've thought about that a lot because I have definitely shiny object syndrome, Mm -hmm. meaning like, again, Mastermind Talks is beautiful because it's very project-based. It's something I work on all year round. And again, for me, I'm I'm blessed to be in the position where the lines between friends and clients are blurred that when I'm spending time with friends like this, this is on some level business. It's more hanging out. Yeah, it's (laughs) hanging out, but it's like, it helps me on the business side of things as well. So this is some, so Mastermind Talks on some level, something I work on all year round, but really from a 
business perspective, it takes a good four or five months of hard, hard work, leaving a lot of space for the remainder of the year. And when I get into those position of space, then I start to get, I get, get shiny objects <laughs> sure. syndrome. And I'm like, I want to get into real estate. Or <laughs> I almost opened a gym. I almost dropped like a million dollars to open a gym, which is so fucking dumb. But I, I did it. I almost, yeah, I was so close. We were in venue negotiations. I mean, I've had lease negotiations, and that's where it fell apart. Was this recent? Yeah, like we're talking. I think I saw you post some like, updates on Facebook about like new projects you had your eye on. Was that I one did, of them? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I, what happened was, I mean, gyms are terrible businesses. Yeah. But for me, it was like I'm passionate about gyms. Like you couldn't tell by looking at me, but I've been going to the gym on and off or have participated in martial yeah. arts for, God, like at least since I was 18 on some level. Oh. And I, I always love like the transformation because I've struggled with weight my mm. entire life. And I've gone up and down and all that kind of stuff. I always right. like the transformation piece yep. for people and, and what it can do and the ripples effect that if somebody gets in shape, it shows up in the relationship, it shows up how they are as a parent, it shows up in their business, yep. all that kind of stuff. So I was, I was attracted to that idea. So it was very much a passion business for me more than anything. It was not like right. a, I'm going to get some gigantic return. But then I also thought about it when the deal was falling apart. I'm like, well, I already have a passion business with Mastermind yeah. Talks. Can you have two passion businesses? Because in theory, wouldn't one take away from the other? Yeah, I mean, one thing I am definitely, I'm always interested in real estate. And that's something I've, I've sat on the sidelines for far, like a really long time. Now, I would say far too long. I had no money three years ago. I was <laughs> beyond broke. But now I have a little bit of cash and I really want to get into to real yeah. estate. So after Mastermind Talks this year, it's something I'm going to explore some more. And I think that that would be a very good kind of marrying of, that would complete my year on some sure. level where I could like focus on Mastermind Talks hard for a couple months. Focus on real estate yeah. for a little bit. And it's real estate is not 100% passive. I don't believe in anything right. that's 100% passive. It is one of those things that once you set it up and you have your systems in place and all that kind of stuff, like you yeah. buy a house and you get property manager and all that kind of stuff, it does kind of keep going on its own and it takes very little time investment afterwards. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the plan for the future. But then also really want to double down on, hate to use the term like personal brand stuff, but mm. coming out with another book late yep. this year and coming out with the podcast again late this year. So those are so those are some things I'm, I'm definitely kind of working on because I always constantly see the ripples effect of like somebody like Ben yep. who's to our last. I mean, he has an enormous platform and right. anytime the guy says anything or somebody's on his podcast, like, it's huge. And that's actually a hu- going to be a, like a, a big relationship play for me on some levels that if I, the more influence I have, the more I can support people I care about. So Absolutely. if I have somebody coming out with a book, I can just tweet it like yep. Tim Ferriss or something like that. Yep. And if he tweets any book, it's almost a bestseller at this point, right? (laughs) So to have that level of influence, like it's not even for me, like my own ego purposes. I actually don't like being in the limelight on that scale. Be able to support, you know, friends of mine. I think it's it's a really cool angle. So that's going to be a huge area of focus for me later on in the year. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to look at actually scaling mastermind talks where you're actually not scaling the business, but you're scaling your support for the people that go, right? Yeah. Which is, it's cool. I haven't looked at it that way. One of my favorite entrepreneurship stories and one that I feel that really actually embodies the fail on mantra that we have here is the story you have about purchasing almost $84,000 worth of books from Tim <laughs> Ferriss without having the money. Give us the backstory there and how you feel that this was actually a really risk averse play in reality. Well, I still have them. <laughs> most, of them most of them. So if anybody wants to buy yeah. 3,000 copies of Tim's book, I got a good, yeah, a good 3,000 copies left. <laughs> so the question was, how did it happen? Yeah. What's the backstory? And yeah. So I guess really quickly, I didn't enjoy my last business as I made mention or as I alluded to earlier. And ended up, when it was all said and done, quarter million dollars in cash debt, didn't know what I was going to do next. Somebody gave me a ticket to go see Seth Godin in New York because they 
they had an extra ticket. I had no other mm-hmm. obligations at the time, so I decided to go. And it turns out it was about the connection economy, how there's huge value connecting like-minded individuals. And I just felt very isolated as an entrepreneur. So I started these dinners called Mastermind Dinners, where I connect entrepreneurs over dinner. And the first one I did, I almost canceled two hours prior because I'm like, nobody's going to see value on this. They're going to think I completely wasted their time. But thankfully, it turned out to be a great success. So I continued to do these dinners, and I was paying for them out of pocket. Mm. Didn't have a business model behind it at all. Didn't have much money at this time, right? No, well, I was I was considering bankruptcy mm. within the, like the next like month or two because I couldn't make rent either. So I'm like, what was your thought process there on dropping six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars on a dinner? Yeah, well, so for me, I felt like the bank could take my car, they could take whatever measly assets I had left, but they couldn't take my relationships. Or anything I invested in myself. So I actually took 25k. I actually didn't. I didn't take 25k. I like cobbled together like enough to like get me into the program, and then spread out the rest like payments that I didn't have money for in the yeah. future. But I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'll figure it out. And I, I joined Joe Policy's 25k mm. group. And that was in 2011, 2012. Also when you didn't have money? Yeah. Oh, so you're just... Oh, I was... You're all in. Who wants money? Dude, we were living on... I, I didn't... I completely forgot about this. We were living on American Express gift cards. Like, <laughs> living on them. Because my last business was was great cash flow-wise. Yeah. We used to get a lot of points on our credit card. So I'd cash those in for American for Express gift cards. gift cards. And we had something like $20,000 of gift cards. Amazing. That lasted us a good year. So we wouldn't... We would only do groceries that somewhere accepted like, these gift cards. <laughs> and it was the worst because... You awesome. couldn't transfer the balances. So we'd have one gift card with like 48 cents and yeah. another one with like a dollar thirty. And when we go to a store, we'd have to give them like six gift cards and be like, this <laughs> oh, adds up. And I completely forgot about this stuff until I found a gift card recently awesome. with a bunch of the numbers on the back of like the balances. So it was like, this has $22 left and it's scratched out. And I was like, it has $18 left. Those things aren't like very easy to find balance either. You have to either go online or oh, call dude, in, right? So it's such archaic. a pain. It's so archaic. Yeah, no, you have to call in. You have to call in. Then type in the number and then wait for for the prompts, bananas. <laughs> and when you have literally, I Just to know. find out you have 48 cents I on know. the car. I know. And then there's other ones that you think are garbage, and then you check, and it's like, this jackpot, you right? You have $250 <laughs> on this car. You're like, what? I almost threw this thing out. So God knows if we still have balances out there. Yeah. So anyways, I was doing the dinners, and I felt like the safest investment was in my network and in mm. myself. And then this was October. In late November, Tim Ferriss ended up writing a blog post. And I, I knew Tim kind of vaguely at that point. And he had a blog post called the All You Can Eat Campaign of Goodness, which was his first book, The Four Hour Chef. That book was banned from all Barnes and Noble bookstores, pretty much all retail distribution before, like three weeks before it came out, because he was the first author to publish through Amazon. Mm. And Barnes and Noble specifically wanted to make an example out of him because. Amazon was just becoming this huge behemoth where yeah. it had a publishing arm. It also had retail and those kind of things. So he ended up having this these different packages, these bulk book order packages where if you bought five books, you'd get additional resources. If you bought 50 books, maybe he'd do a webinar with sure. you. And he had this Hail Mary package. If you bought 4,000 books, he'd do two speaking engagements. And at the time, I was one of the first people to see this blog post because I used to wake up at four in the morning and he just posted it. And I thought of a friend of mine named Scott who does these big events in, in Canada. And I said, this is a great opportunity for him. So I sent him an email. And I'm like, you may want to check this out because you can, when he does events, he has two, 3,000 people mm-hmm. show up at his event so he can easily move these books. I sent him the email. And the minute I click send, I say, you know, this is a great opportunity for anyone because Tim's never spoken in Canada and he doesn't speak that much. I'm like, in the worst case, if I pull the trigger on this, I'm sure I can, I don't know what his speaker fee is. That was the biggest unknown. Like yeah. I've never dealt with speakers before. I don't know if a speaker like Tim charges $10,000 for a gig. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or $100,000. Right. I had no clue. And I tried to do research, no love. I ended up emailing Tim and I said, you know what, I'll take the package. And 
and he only was offering one, which is why I was it was time sensitive. Mm. Yeah, so I emailed him. He was still awake, and he's like, "Yeah, no worries. Uh, I will, we'll talk more when I in the morning." So I said, "Cool." So I had to raise eighty four thousand dollars, pretty much within. You had to pay before it actually happened. You yeah. So what happened the was the, the the I don't think the blog post came out on like the twenty seventh or something like mm. that, or the twenty first, and the book was coming out the following week or the fo- like two weeks away. But I had the order had to be placed Got within seventy two hours or, or something like that. So I need the money like ASAP. But the one thing was is that I never raised money for any of my businesses in the past. I built them all on credit cards. Yep. I mean, my, my e-commerce business, we were doing like $7 million a year, and it was all on credit cards. That was a tough thing because there was a limiting belief. Like I was just raised to never ask anything from yeah. anyone. When I was a kid, I used to work with my father all the time, like evenings, weekends. And like it was almost like a landscaping business. Mm. And people would come out <laughs> outside because I'm like working in the scorching heat, and I'm like seven. And they feel like... They <laughs> Ask me like, do you want juice or water or something? My dad would always tell me like, never accept anything. Yeah. But like at this point, I'm like, my back was against the wall. I'm like, I gotta get this money somehow, right. and I'm not gonna steal it. Those days are over. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up reaching out to three friends. The first one said, "Sounds interesting. Let's talk numbers." And I'm like, unfortunately, I don't think numbers yeah. like accounting perspective. Like I, I'm good at like big picture numbers yeah. like does it make sense doesn't it make sense and, and figure it out from there but like nitty gritty numbers mm-hmm. I'm not good at plus I didn't know the industry at all I found out like you know 20 minutes ago that I was gonna so, get into the speaking business I so guess this guy on the pitch deck right well, like, yeah exactly <laughs> and I'm like I've never done a pitch deck and I don't know yeah. anything about this business at all I don't, there's, there is no business I don't even know what I'm gonna right. do with this but I'm like I need the money the second person said this sounds and he was just a huge fan of mine and he's like listen like sounds cool let's start a business together 50-50 and I'm like that sounds awesome that's better yeah. than what I thought I, I get on on this call but I'm like let, I have one more person to call let me let me call you back and then the third person said come pick up a check in my office tomorrow morning and didn't ask any questions about the business didn't ask anything and I was not going to question it I wasn't going to be like <laughs> are you sure are you sure you don't want a pitch deck I just went and I'm like I, the following day I picked up that check so fast and I, I think I was supposed to pick it up at like 9am I was there at like 8am and I got that money and posited it sent a wire to Tim and bought the books and the event like that I parlayed that and it ended up becoming mastermind talks but a few months after the event you know we never had an agreement in place as far as me paying him back or like what that looked like or was he investing in a business or who knows so I ended up reaching out to him I said the biggest thing that was on my mind now that mastermind talks was a success for year one by event standards I'm like why did you why did you give me that money and he's like well I wasn't really investing in the business I was investing in you and that's when two things became really clear one is that you never know the value of your network until you really need it and two, when you hit rock bottom in life, and we all hit rock bottom yep. at some time, all you'll be left with really is is your word and the integrity of your word and your peer group and yep. your network in essence. So never tarnish your word and always invest in, in your network. So that, yeah, that was a pretty kind of big moment for me. Again, getting back to like yep. strikes of, of luck. I think we all have luck. But looking back, I mean, that was definitely <laughs> very, very yeah. lucky. Because if it wasn't for that investment, I definitely would not be doing master my talks. That's <laughs> for sure. God knows what I'd be doing. Be looking for more American Express gift cards. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. It was scary because of the also the one thing I realized in that time period I was so adverse to working for somebody else that I was almost ready to like live in a shelter before you go get a job before I go get a job yeah because yeah. at that point I had already been an entrepreneur for like seven or eight years mm. to go working for somebody else where I'm I'm told when I can go for lunch and like this you would know, not make sense oh right? god dude I'd, I'd rather die like right. you know what I mean like I that is such I'm very freedom driven yeah. as most entrepreneurs are and to have to be told what to do mm. on that on that kind of micro level just I, I couldn't 
and bear it. It's an interesting thing because a lot of people that, for me, like when I had a corporate job, right? Like I couldn't get out of that situation and become an entrepreneur until the pain I had is like you are saying right now. Going to that job was so painful because I knew I had so much more in me that that's the only way I could have ever broken off is if that pain was greater than me not fulfilling my potential. Sure, most Which definitely. it sounds like that, that was the case for you here. Yeah, I, mean, I just knew I was not going back to any yeah. to working for anybody. Now I'm actually much more open to it. Only because the things that like now I'm more well-versed as far as what's mm. out there and how you can still have freedom working yep. for some, somebody else. Back then, that was not my mentality. Back then, it was like, you're either an entrepreneur or you're chained down working right. for somebody else. But again, now that I've had so many friends get acquired and work for businesses or do that transition and, and jump back between the mm. two, it's not something I'd be totally adverse to. I just would have very kind of clear rules and, and, and those kind of things in place. But And if you're in that position to where you you know you exit a company for five, six million, and then you go work for Facebook, you could probably write your own ticket, go into Facebook. And oh, yeah. Set your own standards, set, be away from the office these months. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's more freedom oftentimes. Yeah. You know, that's the one thing is this fallacy again about freedom, but there's two different types of freedom. There's the freedom to do things and the freedom from the business to right. do things, right? So a lot of people, they seek a position to get the freedom to do things, so they need money. So they get all this money, but then they don't have the freedom from the business to actually do those things, right? And right. They, they end up on their deathbed a slave to their business mm. with all this money, but they never had the freedom from the business to do it. So there's there's those two kind of aspects of freedom that you need. Sometimes you can't, again, achieve that working for a great company. Which one would you say you value more? Would it be the financial side or the, the time side? Ugh. Like taking it almost to an extreme where financially you don't can't afford any luxuries in life, but you have your shelter covered, your food covered, but you have the time to spend with Candace and Ava, your family, your friends. I can acknowledge this guy really quickly <laughs> because he is going to be, I think, another podcast guest. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Chris Plow, who is Chris Plow, as is uh, bright and early. Yeah, hip in my face right now, which is not awkward <laughs> at all. <laughs> now it's not as hip anymore. <laughs> I should have got such a low chair. So, which one do I value more? Yeah. So, yeah. I think I can lie and say sure. I value the freedom from, and I say lie because I think what you truly value can show up in your calendar, right? Yeah. Like I remember, I used to say, "Oh, I've, I put my family first and all this kind of stuff," like most people do, or I put my spouse first. Mm. But then I'm like, you really, you look at your calendar, you really see what you value, right? If I, I have all my meetings scheduled and yeah. all this stuff blocked out and I have no time blocked out with my wife or no date nights planned or yep. no time blocked out with my daughter, I'm like, I can say that stuff, but do I really value it, right? So sure. I value, again, the from piece. Mm-hmm. I definitely do. But where I know I've shown up in the last 13 years was more the freedom to do things, meaning accumulating money so that I could do these things. And then I would almost justify that, like, I could do these things if I want to but I'm going to focus on making more money, right? Sure, so, sure. But I think I'm at a nice balance too at this point where, I mean, I could do a lot of different things mm. for the sake of scaling mastermind talks. I could make a yeah. lot more money. I mean, we could easily have, I could easily, we sold out last month and we're four months, or we were four months out at that point. And I could have easily sold twice the amount of tickets oh, and sure. made three times the amount of money only because there's a point where like once a bare cost for the event are covered, anything else is 90% profit. Yeah. So we could have made way more money doubling the size of the event. But again, there's that opportunity cost there that it just wouldn't be as good. And I it would take a lot more work and it would take the freedom from like I'm, I've been relatively disconnected during this trip. I would not be as disconnected if I had right. you know twice the amount of people to, to kind of cater to. Of so I think I'm at a point now where I'm, I'm starting to live 
that balance. Money is definitely not everything at all. You know, I could make more money selling widgets on Amazon, but I want to do work that's fulfilling. I want to have space and time in my schedule to do things that are of interest to me or more importantly, even support people I care about. That's a huge kind of piece of my life is not just having open space in my calendar for myself, but to, to support other people. So yeah, I think I'm, I'm getting close to, to living that balance. Mm-hmm. But me of a couple of years ago was all focused on the freedom to do things, yeah. not necessarily freedom from. And I was very much a slave to my business. Got it. No, that's an interesting perspective. Just to transition a little bit. So fail on the mantra you live by here with the idea being that if you're not failing, you're not growing. So with that in mind, how do you force yourself currently to get out of your comfort zone or do you? Well, first, I think there's this misconception about, I think failure is almost, this pendulum's gone too much the other way, mm. at least in tech. Oh, fuck, I know. I don't know if you can swear. I'm sorry about that. But Not anyways, sure. uh, <laughs> just mark this episode. I guess you can a, now. Yeah, mark this episode <laughs> as explicit and they'll be fine. It'll give me more street cred like an Eminem album. <laughs> oh, but fear. Oh, and I was getting on the, the whole fallacy of fear. So, or not fallacy, oh, but no, the misconception. No, well, getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Well, I, I just one thing about you know, the whole failure. It's almost celebrated. And I think the pendulum before was like, don't screw up yeah. or that kind of stuff. And now it's like to the point where it's celebrated, where right. these, these people in like tech are taking $10 million in investment yep. and losing it all. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Like, uh, it's a it's a failure. On to the next one. I'm like, dude, that's not your money. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right, that's, right, a, that's right. a big problem, yep. right? So I think it, it, in some environments, the pendulum has swung mm. too much the other way. I mean, for me, as far as getting outside my comfort zone, I think that I do things in my business that force me outside my comfort zone and force me from getting lazy. A couple things. Like, one is feedback. I take feedback very, very seriously. We have a lot of different things implemented in the business to take feedback. I don't even just take feedback. I like I process feedback, which is, is huge and incredible incredibly difficult, especially when you do work that you care about and the people you care about and you figure it out like it's easy to live in your head and, and be like, oh, we're batting it out 100% all the time and, and all that kind of stuff. But to actually like, take feedback is terrible, but <laughs> it keeps me outside my comfort zone. It keeps me kind of pushing. And then there's things I do for using events as context, usually 99.9% of events, they stay the same format every year. Mm-hmm. Most of them keep the same venue. And once you have the model down, it's just it's systems. Like, right. dude, if I do one event in our last one in Ojai, California, once that event was done, I could replicate that event. New location, everything the else. Same, kind of you know, the same, same event, right? exact same event six months later with a different group of people. Yeah. And 95% of the heavy lifting is done. But then you become, you get into autopilot. And there's no innovation that happens from that. So for us, we pick a new venue every year. And one of the core reasons is that it forces us to start from scratch. So it forces us to innovate. It forces us to be outside our comfort zone. So that when people, like I have friends of mine who've been in the event space for years, and they are cool as a cucumber all the way up to the event. Everything is done, dealt with. Again, all their systems are in place. Everything's in motion. I'm a wreck. From like this point forward, I am an absolute wreck sure. because there's so many variables. There's yeah. like, who knows what can happen? What happens if it rains? What happens if this venue sucks? What yep. happens if the caterer does terrible food? Like there's so many variables, mm. but it pushes me outside my comfort zone every single time, which shows up in the fact that we have so many people that want to come back year over year. My only real KPI that I monitor is well, and the success of the event and the community is like, how many people are renewing? Right. How many people want to come back year over year? Because like most events, it, people, it's like a revolving door. It's like pouring water in a strainer. But there's a great saying by John Paul DeJoria, I don't want to be in the order business. I want to be in the reorder business. Mm. And that's very much my view and philosophy. So the only reason like somebody like Chris has been at every single event that we've yeah. done, this is going to be his fifth event. Not too many people go to like every single event or belong right. to a community for four plus years yeah. or those kind of things. We have a lot of those people. And it's only because, again, pushing myself outside of the comfort zone. It sucks because it's way easier to like go on autopilot systematize and systematize business. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're successful is when you're most vulnerable. 
you can tend to get sloppy and you can tend to get arrogant. And I do, I have a few things in place that, that keep me pretty grounded. You're obviously focused more on quality than quantity and scale sure. in mastermind talks. How do you kind of raise the bar each year or do you even try or do you just try to make a new experience oh, no. no no i definitely try and that's again one of the debilitating components because every time you raise the bar you raise the expectations it's going to be tougher each year after that and right? it's never ending i mean the one thing is and this is actually a, a nugget of wisdom somebody told me and this was after mastermind talks year three he asked me he's like what's your biggest struggle with mastermind talks and i said specifically that is that like we raise the bar every year and we try really hard to do it mm. but every time we do it it's now just expected, and like, how do you just stay on this like this grind of always trying to raise the bar? Because yeah. eventually you're going to slip right. on some level, and that's my biggest fear is like slipping. That somebody says last year was better than this mm. year, it's going to break my heart, right? right? So, so what he said it was like, well, instead of trying to raise the bar, why don't you throw out the bar? And he didn't mean much by it, but the way I took it, it was like, well, why are we creating experiences that you can almost match, like? Apples to apples. Like compare. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Compare. Yeah. Our first two events took place at the exact same venue, right? Mm. So it was easy to compare the Got two. It. Got that it. one was better than the other, yep. and this was better this year, and that was wrong that, that year, and that kind of stuff. But I'm like, if we change the venue every year, you still can compare on some level, but it also makes it significantly more difficult. It makes it a one-off experience. So that's that's one of the components, mm. is that we change the venue every year. Therefore, it's a different experience. Therefore, it's hard to to compare between past events. And yeah, it's, uh, again, getting back to the whole comfort zone thing. I mean, our format last year was, I surprised people with it. Last year we had, we sold out a good three months in advance without announcing any speaker, any agenda. And when people got there, our model up until that point was like a TED Talks for entrepreneurs. Mm. We'd have 15 talks during an event. Our model last year, when people got there, I said, hey, I actually, full transparency, I've completely forgot that we changed the format and we didn't tell anybody. Like, in the sense that, like, I changed this format in my head sure. nine months ago, <laughs> not realizing that, like... Nobody else knew. I didn't tell the attendees that, right. like, this was the new format. <laughs> so I was terrified. But basically, we said we're actually shifting to a peer-to-peer model where we have mm. virtually no speaker. And that was getting out of my comfort zone. I mean, mm. people spent, whatever, eight grand to be there with travel. If they're Canadians, yeah. like, 13 Ran to announce like, hey, we're actually changing the format, and we don't know how this is going to go. We think it's going to go well, but we're not a hundred percent sure. We, you know, we don't know. We've never done this before, and we nobody really does events like this. And some people were uncertain. As soon as I announced it, I was watching. I was being super careful and cautious of like people's facial reactions and that kind of stuff. And I had a few friends of mine come up to me afterwards, and like they weren't a hundred percent bought in. But I'm like, <laughs> judge it when it's all said and done. Yeah. And when it was all said and done, overwhelmingly, it was the most positive event we've ever done. Our NPS score, and I know we calculate it wrong because in theory it would be a ten out of ten, but mm. I don't believe in that. On a scale of one to ten, if you're not familiar with NPS, it's you ask the question, would you refer our product or service to a friend? Basically, mm. this and, is net promoter score. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And if it's like six or seven, then it's like they could go, you know, they, you're probably going to lose them as a client in the long term. Sure. If they're like an eight or a nine or a 10, they're, they're like an evangelist or, or those kind of things. Out of the 138 people, I think, who, who submitted the survey last year, which was like 80% of our audience, our score was 9.77 mm. out of 10, which was like tremendous. But it was only because we took that risk and outside our comfort zone and we push ourselves every year. So I think that's a, a common theme. And then why I've probably started this podcast saying like, you know, the, the amount of stress that you put on yourself to it can be debilitating is because i live outside my comfort zone every year for this event on some level Mm. because if i systematized it and did it for the sake of scaling and all that kind of stuff i mean it would be much more yeah there wouldn't be that much pressure around it but i always try to push myself outside my comfort zone because that's been the key to our success and the people you know and the people who come to our event again because i care about them so much that's what Mm. 
they deserve. Yeah, I mean, on that note, what's one directive or action item that you would give someone that has a burning desire to create a better life, but aren't necessarily sure of where to start, what business to start, or what their idea might be? Yeah, well, I'll steal a, a saying from somebody who's on this trip with us, Philip McKernan, sure. that in the absence of, of clarity, take action. The whole reason the Tim Ferriss thing worked in the buying of the books was that I had known from my previous life in entrepreneurship that every time I threw a Hail Mary, mm. which is like football terms, I didn't realize not everybody knows what a Hail Mary is. <laughs> so it's like a football term. Where Philip just, McKernan wouldn't know. Exactly. Where somebody <laughs> runs like a thousand yards and you throw a ball, like you don't know if it's going to work at all, but you just, you know, throw it out there and, and cross your fingers. Every time I threw a Hail Mary in my last business, mm. I always found a way to make it work. Every month, the only reason we were able to grow faster than our competitors, I put half a million dollars in transactions on my credit card, on my Amex, and had to pay it back in 21 days with zero dollars in my bank account. <laughs> you know, doing that month over month over the years, I'm like, I'll find a way to make things Build work. that muscle, right? Yeah. And the Tim Ferriss thing, I never thought I'd be in the event space. I mean, I saw the blog post and I'm like, I'll do it. I'll, yeah. like, it makes sense. And I know worst case scenario, I could potentially sell off the books and get some money back or sell right. the speaking engagements and get some money back. But I think, yeah, the taking action component mm. is huge. And then also Steve Jobs has a saying that you can't connect the dots looking forward. You just have to trust that they, they somehow connect in sure. the future. Can't steer a park car, right? So you right. have to like take action. You have to kind of move forward. And one of the biggest things now with like self-actualization is everybody's trying to like, all our basic needs are met, right? 99.9% yep. .9 of us have shelter, mm. food, all those kind of things. So we're moving up Maslow's higher of needs and we're asking ourselves like will I be remembered why am I here like what's the meaning of my life what's my purpose right. and those kind of things and to me like a lot of those like purpose or meaning like I don't even know if I'm living my quote unquote purpose per sure. se and I, I don't even get me started on just that <laughs> whole way of thinking yeah. but like it would be ignorant for me to, to think that I'm going to be doing mastermind talks for the rest yeah. of my life I know at my core I'll be mastermind talks at its core surrounding myself with, with people I care immensely mm -hmm. about and supporting them I'll be doing that for sure for the rest of my life but it may take shape in different ways in, in, totally. in the future. You find out what's important to you, right? And then you kind of follow that path. Yeah. Like for you, it seems like supporting people is that's who you are. Most definitely. To yeah. the core. But it's also, it's, it's also like, I think of it almost like an, an onion, mm. right? That like you're constantly peeling away layers yep. and getting to like what that true yep. essence of, of who you are is. And I feel like I'm just I'm much closer to it than I was before. And I feel like on some level I'm, I'm at it, but I'm right. probably not. I'm 32, right? Sure. So <laughs> sure. again, because five years ago, I never thought I'd be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. 10 years yeah. ago, I've got, who knows the direction I thought I'd... And if you're just starting out, I know I felt like this, maybe you did as well, is that your first business, you think this is going to be the only business you do your whole life. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. the last business ever. Uh, yeah. We're, and it's crazy to think that, but I, for whatever reason, I think everybody feels that way at the beginning. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you should because, I mean, then on some level because then you'll really double down on it. Right. Because if you look at things like, oh, it's gonna, this is only going to be a year or something, potentially you could take shortcuts, right? So there's if you do have that long-term thinking, I mean, you're probably going to make better decisions for the long term. I just think people sometimes get paralyzed by the fact that they think this is going to be their only business. That's so actually a good point. Yeah. They really like get paralyzed by it not being the right one or maybe this isn't it. So I think with anything, there's a balance where you just have to start taking action, like yeah. you said with your quote, versus... Yeah, not taking shortcuts, but also still taking it very seriously. Yeah. No, I think that's the biggest thing is people just simply don't take I My my brother and I are polar opposites in that sense. He mm. takes no chances, no risks. Mm. 28 still lives at home. Yeah. I was out of the house when I was 17. You know what I mean? Right, so right. we're very polar opposites in that sense. But again, I never thought I'd be where I am in the industry I am in the business I am. But that Tim Ferriss thing, mm. I noticed that like when I was spiraling kind of out of control on some level, it was a long time. I became trigger shy yeah. and I stopped taking risks. 
And when that Tim Ferriss thing came along, I'm like, this is another Hail Mary. This mm-hmm. is a Hail Mary I can take. That was, yeah, that was an action I took and it led me to this. So those those small little actions just keep moving. That's yep. the biggest thing is when you stop, just like when you work out, right? You, you're off for two, three weeks or you're on vacation. It's so hard to get back it's started. It's brutal, right? Yeah. But once you get going, you, you got momentum. And I yeah. remember when I was getting back into the gym after a long, long time about building habits, like you, you want to start very small, right? right? And I remember I in, like institutionalized, like I'm only going to the gym for the first month for 10 minutes, mm. which makes no sense. <laughs> but it was such a short period of time that it gave me, I had no reasons not to go, yeah. right? I couldn't be like, oh, I don't have 10 minutes today. You know right, what I mean? Right, so right. again, starting small, taking action, I think are, are two of the biggest steps. If you had to pinpoint one person who's had the most profound impact in your life and what do they teach you? You. <laughs> well, about, so kind. about good looks <laughs> this is also your first in-person podcast oh this is actually there you go most of our skype audio Blamo. yeah see you're beautiful <laughs> so one person i've learned the most from yeah it's had the single most like profound impact on you mm. with where you're at today tough question only because again i look at like some people who've had big impacts on I me mean, we talked about two of them early on and if it wasn't for those you look at the profound impact over time if it wasn't for those two little small investments Ripples, they made yeah. yeah exactly i wouldn't be where i am so it's hard not to acknowledge those folks i think overall and i, I don't want to yeah, name drop or, or anything like that but i think tim ferris has had a huge i don't think i know he's had a huge impact on my life only because in 2011 i came across a book for our work week mm-hmm. 2008 read the book and i was like oh this is interesting then there was a story in there about i think it was called from fables to fortune it was mm-hmm. about the, this nba guy and this this mexican there's this great story and it, it actually fundamentally shifted the way i look at a life on some level because the, the the essence of the story was that this nba guy stumbled across this mexican fisherman and you know what, what are you up to today he's like oh i'm gonna go fishing then i'm gonna mm-hmm. go siesta with my family and uh, i know this and one. the guy's like oh he's like well you should get more fishing boats and, and build a fishery yeah. and all this kind of stuff and basically go through this entire story and then to the end end up with the life he already has and and that's the mistake a lot of us make. And that was a really impactful kind of story for me. And I got that from the 4-Hour Workweek. In 2011, Tim did a, an event called Opening the Kimono, mm. which was geared towards authors who wanted to become New York Times bestselling authors. I saw him come out with this event, and I never had the intention of ever becoming an author, but it was $10,000 to go for two days. And $10,000 at the time was a piss ton of money. It was <laughs> 20 times yeah. more than I ever paid for an event. But I'm like, at ten grand, there's probably going to be some interesting people there. And that fundamentally shifted the way I view and value being surrounded by mm. people who are one or two steps ahead. I mean, that's where I met Ramit Sethi, Lewis Howes, Ryan Holiday, Robert Green, like just a slew of amazing folks. And oh, you yeah. maintain relationships from that event? Oh, yeah, all of them. <laughs> you know, yeah. As many as I could. Joey Coleman. Awesome. I met yeah. Chris Plow. I met Chris. Yeah, Chris was telling me Opening that. the kimono. I met yeah. Joey Coleman. These yeah. are like two of my favorite people. Ryan Holiday is, again, one of my favorite people. So so that happened in 2011. And then 2012 is when mm-hmm. I bought the books. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have had Mastermind Talks be a success. I yeah. mean, there's no two ways about it. No two ways about it. It's been good. And then I've had I've put friends on his podcast. Yeah. And that's helped them tremendously with their books. And it's helped him as well on some level. So he's had definitely had the most profound impact over the long term term than anybody else and so how's that, that for a name drop? that's a <laughs> lamo drop the mic yeah richard branson and i <laughs> we go back <laughs> oh that's amazing so obviously mastermind talks is coming up in 69 days it is what are you most excited about leading up towards that and then we'll wrap this baby up i'm not excited I'm excited well, when you're going to be a mess. I know. Stress. I'm excited when it's all said and done. Okay. Uh, so be excited 72 days from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just want it to be a success, obviously, and not a success. Success by like just people's experience mm. and how they feel during the experience. And that's tough. It's tough because it's not also not like binary. It's not like I'm selling something, double your business, and then you can like 
see it, right? You're dealing yeah. with people's emotions and whether they feel like this year is better than last mm. year. And you know, who knows? Maybe they're going through a divorce and that's going to like impact their experience. And no matter sure. how great the experience sure. is, they're not going to enjoy it. So, yeah. But I'm also terrible at celebrating. Even when the event's done, I'm yep. like, could have been better. And next year will be even better. You know what I mean? Sure. So there's never really a point where I'm like, uh, yeah. oh, we had another park. I'm getting better. But by most people's standards, I'm terrible at celebrating. And most entrepreneurs <laughs> I know are yeah. terrible at it as well, which I think on some level helps us with, with goal setting because mm. we set these like lofty goals and achieve them. We're like, yeah, that wasn't big enough. I wasn't thinking big yeah. enough. I'm going to move the goalpost again. But it's weird because I have all this pressure. I, I did a speaking engagement recently and I put all this pressure on me before I get onto the stage. Like mm. I, I drill the talk 50 times. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, this is going to suck, blah, blah, blah. And then, <laughs> then I get on stage and then I just and make it work. And it like turns yeah. out that version on the stage oftentimes is better than any version I practice. And the kind of the same thing with mastermind talks. I put all this pressure. I think of every single worst case scenario. I just I play the event in my head over and over and over mm. and over again. And then when I get on stage and everybody's in the room, I'm like, I feel at home. I feel like, oh, nice. we're, it, yeah, there's nothing. Finally, a sense of peace and like, yeah, it's here. Yeah, and so especially when everybody's in the room. Because yeah. actually, like nothing sucks wind out of my sails more than when we have cancellations. Mm. So because again, these are like some of my favorite people on the planet. Yeah, I'm looking yeah. forward to seeing them. I have seating. I have their experience planned in my head, mm. and I'm like, oh, I can't wait for him to see this person or sit him next to that person. And yeah. then when they can't come for any reason, which there's not many people who cancel, obviously last minute, but it happens. People I don't know the details that go into your events are insanity yeah right i know you take a ton of pride in that stuff so down to the details of who's sitting with who where everything's strategic and sure. everything you lay out for the event which is unlike any other event yeah so just so the audience has some context there yeah yeah it's very high touch in that nature and because of that all the variables are leading up to it are, are scary but then again when i step on stage i know it's real mm -hmm. and i know what I have to work with is right in front of me. Like I have those specific people right. and now it's kind of go time. So yeah. I start to actually somewhat enjoy myself at the event. And then the final dinner is when I'm on cloud nine. That's usually yeah. like 99% of the event has been executed. It's gone well. We have 1% left. Probably not going to screw it up at this point. Now I can start enjoying right, myself. Right, right. So. Everybody's everybody's had their few drinks at the bar. Exactly, There's yeah. less stress. Yeah, <laughs> no, so that, that's the plan. I'm excited about it. It's awesome, man. You can wrap it up there, but thanks for taking the time on in the middle of a vacation in the Bahamas. No worries. I really it's, appreciate it's, it windy and looks a little stormy but it'll clear up so well thank you for waking up so early love it all right thanks jason all right dude you can find jason at jasongaynard.com and you can also connect to jason on twitter he's at jasongaynard on twitter that's at jasongaynard that spelling along with the links and resources jason and i discussed including more information on his book podcast and events can be found at the page created especially for this episode. You'll find it all at failon.com slash 001. And finally, as I'm creating this project with the simple goal of getting people to take action through embracing failure, if you could do one thing to support my mission, I would greatly appreciate it. If you'd just be so kind to rate and review the podcast, I would be ever so grateful. This will actually help the podcast be visible to more people. And if you feel it deserves a five-star rating and you leave a review, I'll be sure and mention you by name in an upcoming episode as just a small way to say thanks. To rate and review the podcast, you can simply go to failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.